Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. So uh, as Lance has said, we are continuing and, and finishing up our series on uh, Jesus as priest and king and prophet. And so the question this morning is, what is a prophet? And by prophet, I mean prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, not P-R-O-F-I-T. Though I will tell you my life, I have uh, been able to see as I've gotten a little older, uh, just how lame my life has gotten. It has, um, to some extent, I'm still okay because I watch ESPN. That's fine. Uh, but I often in my days with uh, two popsicles, okay, uh, and I'm watching CNBC, okay? Now, judge me if you want, but on CNBC is two really cool shows. Anybody know? Great. I'm the only nerd in here. Shark Tank and The Prophet, okay? The Prophet as in P-R-O-F-I-T. And I love that show. In that show is uh, a centered around a businessman named Marcus Lemoyne. He is uh, a very successful, well-off businessman. And uh, he is an itinerant businessman who travels around the country and he helps struggling businesses. Have you, have you seen the show? No? I'm picking a bad illustration to get connected here with you guys. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. You, you guys going to watch CNBC this week. I'm telling you, it'll be the first time you ever watch CNBC at the end of the day, okay? So what he does is he goes in, and uh, these uh, businesses are struggling, okay? They, they've had a hard time. Uh, they're often in shambles, or they have an idea that they want to go to the next level, but there are certain obstacles that stop them from moving on to the next level. And so what he does is he often comes in, he provides a look at their business and he says, okay, uh, here's the things that needs to change. And they're like, yeah, great. That's fine. Sign us up. Let's, let's do these things. And uh, what happens is he comes in and he looks at their business structure. He looks at uh, the way that they, uh, they do day-to-day -day operations and he comes in and he says, this has all got to change. And uh, he basically comes in and he says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to provide capital to you, and in exchange for me coming in and helping you, I want, and it's usually like a 60% share of your business. You know, it's, it's a big part. So he comes in, he says, I'm going to come in, and I'm going to take, and everybody's like, yeah, that's great. And then the next day, he comes back, and he's like, it's all got to go. And they're like, well, I thought you were just kidding. Like, it's all got to, I thought this was just like you can come in and kind of help us a little bit, give us a check, and then go on. But he comes in, he's like, this shop, this ice cream place, we're tearing it all down. It's not going to look, you know, like we're in the 1920s anymore. It's 100 years. And he just comes in and renovates everything. And at some point in the show, the moment in, in which they get to the point where the problem that has been hindering these business owners rises to the top and people get ticked. Now I got you. Now you want to watch it. They get ticked. They start yelling at him and they're like, oh, we thought you were the one to come in. You know, we thought that you were the one uh, that we could call and who, who would come and rescue us from this, this situation. And what Marcus does is he, uh, it's a play on word. He's actually very much like a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T at this point. And what he does is he comes in and he says, listen, if you don't heed my words, I'm going to tell you what your future is. Your uh, revenues will shut down. You will have to get rid of employees. Um, you will lose 80% of your business, right? So what, what's he doing at that point? He's being a prophet. He is uh, uh, forth telling. He's, he's looking at their profit and loss. He's looking at their uh, situation and he's telling them this is what's going to happen. 
And so some of what he does is he foretells, hey, the future is bleak for you. Give up your old ways and take on my way. But what he mainly does is he proclaims, right? He foretells what is going to happen. And his message is essentially this, repent and believe in my way, take up my way and follow me from now on and things will be better. Come to me, believe in who I claim to be, Marcus Lemoyne, the successful businessman. Come to me, follow me, and therefore what I'm able to do for you, you can rest in. And the show sometimes ends in a nice little tidy bow and everything's fine. And in other cases, the people don't listen and within months they're done. And when we hear the word prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, what we often think of is crazy soothsayers, people who predict the end of the world and like all the crazy things that will happen. And while predicting things was common for Old Testament prophets, that's not all that they did, okay? They, they didn't just simply foretell or predict. They foretold. They proclaimed often. And, and what they would do is what uh, most of their message would actually come from the Old Testament and the covenant that God made with his people. And they would come and say, God has rescued you and he's made this covenant with Abraham. Remember, and this is how you enjoy the covenant blessings of God, right? They were covenant servants. And, and if you obey and if you're faithful, this is the blessings that will come. But if you're not, these are the judgments that will come. And this is what will happen and, uh, if you continue on in your rebellion. And we have been in this Advent series uh, the last few weeks, and uh, we've looked at these three Old Testament offices, if you will, right? right? We said priest, and we said king, and we've said prophet, and today we're going to finish up, and in Deuteronomy 18, I want you just to look in Deuteronomy 18, look at how all this kind of fits together. Um, we will look at the verses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers. It is uh, to him you shall listen. Now, I want you to catch the context of what's going on here in Deuteronomy. Look in your Bibles in Deuteronomy, just the section before this, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and let me find the verse here, 18 verse 1. Okay, if you got your Bible, you might have a, a little subheading there. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi. So now we've seen prophet, and what's in chapter 18, verse 1? Priest, right? Now let's look back in chapter 17, verse 14, okay? Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me. What do we have there? Right? Prophet, priest, king. Now, why does this matter? What, what is this whole context within? Look back just a little bit more. We're getting the context here. In Deuteronomy 17, where all this starts. Deuteronomy 17, verse 1. And you might have a subheading or a heading just above chapter 17 in your Bibles. It says, forbidden form of worship. That's what mine says. Look at Deuteronomy 17. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or sheep, which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination 
to your Lord. So this is what priest and prophet and king is all about. We, we are not here to kind of give you an end of a year series of, hey, here's a little bit more information to take with you into 2020. What prophet, priest, and king is all about is worship. It's, it's not just about light. It's about heat. It's so you will have reference points and categories and understand what it means to have the greatest joy in the world, and that is to know God as prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king is what good is it, right? What good is it to have a priest if he can't bring you to God? What good is it to have a king if he can't rightly administer the kingdom of God? What good is it to have a prophet if he can't rightly tell you the truth about God? These are not categories to help you just, oh yeah, I know this truth about Christianity or about the Bible. Hmm, check. This is about light and heat, about ravishing your heart that you might be radically changed to see and to savor Jesus and to know him and to help you worship God more. Because how can you worship him if you don't know him, right? And what good is this sermon this morning if you don't see and savor Jesus. So I am tasked today to show us how Jesus is the true and greater prophet. So let me just take maybe a half dozen or so of the prophets of the Old Testament. I'm going to start with one that I'm sure that you know. His name is Micaiah, right? <laughs> no, sorry, wrong one to start with. That's fine. You didn't know Marcus Lemoyne. You don't know Micaiah. That's okay. All right, so in uh, 1 Kings 22, there is uh, a king named Ahab. Bad dude. Bad, bad king. Like, terrible king. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab sends uh, a delegation over to uh, Micaiah, and he says, hey, we're going to go into war. Should we go? And uh, Micaiah, um, what do you think? All the other prophets are saying we should go. What say you? And they, uh, and Micaiah's like, well, let's go to the king. So they bring him before the king, and King Ahab says, Micaiah, should we go? And I think Micaiah says to Ahab, go on into battle. The Lord's going to give them to you. And I think Ahab picks up on his tone because Ahab then looks at him and he says, swear to me that what you're telling me is actually the truth. And Micaiah says this. He says this in 1 Kings 22, 7. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep with no shepherd. Meaning, Ahab, you're going to die. No king. Scan forward to the life of Jesus, and Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does he do? He has his ministry, and he walks out to the crowds, and he looks out. And how does he see the crowds? As just simply a bunch of people to serve his own needs? No. What does Jesus do? He looks out at the crowds, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel predicts the temple would be abandoned by God in Ezekiel 10. That God, that the Shekinah glory would be gone. That it would leave. You read Ezekiel, you'll get through like the first part of 10. You're like, what the heck is happening here? This is weird. <laughs> this is really strange. And uh, if you're laughing, it's because you've read it. And you're like, I, I, Lance, help. You know, like what is going on here? And there's this depiction of all these different scenes. And the picture is the glory of God is leaving the temple. 
in the temple, when Jesus shows up, if you know Matthew 24, Jesus is walking around and his disciples say, look how glorious and great that temple is. Look at it. And you know what Jesus says, Matthew 24? Look at that temple. I tell you right now, there will be no stone left. It will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. Much like Ezekiel. Jeremiah was called a traitor. All the other prophets were proclaiming and they were uh, saying, no, let's not go into exile. We need to keep being Israelites. We need to remain faithful to our people. And Jeremiah was saying, no, go to Babylon. You need to go. God is telling you to go. And they called him a traitor and they said that he was out of his mind and he was not really the true prophet. And what happens when you come to Jesus? He was consistently called a traitor. He was consistently called um, a rebellious son, which in Deuteronomy, you stoned rebellious sons because they led the people away from God. And what happens when you come to Mark, I think it's like Mark 3 or 4. Jesus is proclaiming and he's talking about what it means to be the people of God. And even his mother and brothers think he's out of his mind. Jonah, of course, proclaims the judgment of God to the Ninevites. He goes to the nations, to the pagan nations. And what happens? He's rebellious. He falls asleep on a ship, right? He runs from God. He's so tired from running from God. He's in the middle of a storm and he's sleeping on a ship. And they, all the, all the sailors are like, what are we going to do? We're going to perish. And he's like, throw me in. Throw me in the water. I know this is all my fault. They throw him in. What happens? You would think getting swallowed by a giant fish or whale is a bad thing. In that case, it's actually deliverance. Because what happens if the fish doesn't swallow him? He drowns. <laughs> he then shows up to Nineveh after being delivered from imminent death. And he proclaims judgment and repentance to Nineveh. And what happens to Jesus? We see him in the Gospels and there's a major storm, right? And Jesus is what on the ship? He's sleeping. Is he sleeping because he's running like Jonah? No, he's sleeping because he controls all of it. And Jesus is on this ship and he continues proclaiming the kingdom of God. And what happens later on in the end of his ministry? He faces the judgment of God for the people he proclaims. And he's vindicated by his, by his resurrection. His message is vindicated and he's shown to be the true and greater Jonah. Amos goes all throughout the Old Testament and he tells the people of God, the day of the Lord is coming. It's the, it is not light, it's darkness. The day of God is coming. And it's actually going to be like a man who um, tries to escape from uh, a lion. And he runs home. And when it, as he gets to his home, a bear grabs him up and eats him. <laughs> it's like a man who, who thinks he's gotten to refuge and safety when actually the judgment of God comes on him when he least expects. And what does Jesus have to do all throughout his ministry? Constantly redefining what the day of the Lord is. Constantly having to tell Israel that it will be a day of woe and not blessing. And even so, the day of the Lord touches down in Jesus when it comes at his cross. When he takes the judgment of God for the people of God on the cross. For all those who would ever believe in him. 
And then, of course, we have Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, proclaims a message from God, and he lives it out with all kinds of symbolism. You can go back and, and read Isaiah, but he confronts the people of God with foolishness of their ways, and he calls them to a different way. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry, and he stands up in a place much like this, and he grabs a scroll from Isaiah, and he reads it, and here's his sermon. And you're thinking, this would be great to have a sermon because it's like 0.4 seconds. And then we can leave. <laughs> Jesus reads Isaiah and he says, Today, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And he sits down. And then, and everybody's like, hmm. And then he says something that almost gets him killed and thrown off the side of a mountain. He says, Elijah and Elisha were also all about me. Jesus introduced and explained the nature of his ministry by saying all of the prophets, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, are all fulfilled in him, in his person, and in his work. And when you take these and others like them, I gave you six or seven prophets. There were hundreds of prophets, some of which are not even really named in the Old Testament. We get little glimpses, but there were hundreds of prophets. And it's clear that Jesus didn't simply understand himself as one prophet among many. As a timeless teacher with ethics. Jesus didn't simply want us to only think that he is uh, the prophet like Moses to come. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's absolutely true. But it isn't that Jesus decided to start a revolution and then looked out at all these prophets and said, let me see if I can make my life look like theirs and do all these things to try to match up and resemble them. No, no. What Jesus is, what's happening here when you get to uh, the Old Testament and you begin to read the New Testament, all these prophets are like pieces of a puzzle. They're all little small pictures of a puzzle. And when you put them together and you see the whole picture, it's about Jesus. All of these prophets have been about Jesus himself. All the prophets in the Old Testament have been pointing together so that their climax and their resolution and their meaning have been about Jesus of Nazareth. And last night in my neighborhood, uh, I was up at 11 o'clock not watching the prophet. Um, I was looking over notes and I'm sitting by my office and uh, I live on a busy street in Pecan Grove and uh, people are driving around at all hours of the night, all hours of the night. Um, Hay rides, caroling, of course, over in Pecan Grove. And, of course, you have the frustrated drivers who are passing up everyone else. And I can hear, it sounds like I'm at the beach. Like, and then I hear, people honking. And I'm like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, I don't know why I'm singing right now. But let me ask you, do houses in Pecan Grove exist for the lights or do the lights exist for the houses in Pecan Grove? Think about this. Think about this. If you say your house exists for the Christmas lights, you just outed yourself as the guy who leaves up the lights until March. Okay? <laughs> and someone's like, oh no, shoot. Right. No, you, they didn't build your house to be like, hey, yeah, let's put, this is, these houses here, these are for Christmas lights. Right? <laughs> no. What is the whole point? The whole point is to put the uh, sight of, look at our homes. 
Right? What's the point of a light bulb in a string of lights? Is it about the light bulb itself or does it contribute to the whole string of lights? Right? The lights exist for the house. The individual light bulbs don't exist for themselves. They contribute to a larger picture. And all of Israel's history, all of human history, all of the world's history has been building up to this moment of Jesus' person and work. And Jesus is not simply another bulb in the string of lights. He is the house. He is the structure. He was there before the light bulbs were put up and he will be there long after the bulbs go down. He is the one faithful prophet who remains. Jesus is the prophet in whom history meets its moment. And if that's true, is he more than a prophet? Is he more than a prophet? See, the world's fine with saying Jesus is a prophet. It's when you get to priest and king that, mm, not too sure. And if that's the case, if he is more than a prophet, I want to take you back a little further in history. I want to take you back to when all of this began. And so if you got your Bibles, flip back to, Ge- to Genesis chapter 2. And while you're flipping there to Genesis chapter 2, we'll, we'll go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Um, I have a banana tree in my, in my backyard. Um, it, at least I'm, I'm told it's a banana tree. I call it an elephant ear tree. It's one of those big, you know, green thing. Okay, I can't describe this. It's, uh, it's got these stalks that come up and like apparently there's supposedly bananas that are growing from it. I don't know, nor do I care if they're bananas. I'm never going to eat them in my backyard. Uh, but last year um, I sat and uh, I looked up, uh, how do I take care of these uh, banana trees, these big elephant ears? And uh, so what I, what I read was that um, I can go up to these trees and I can kind of cut, cut them down um, and like leave it for a week. And the idea was that it will grow back bigger next year. And so I thought, oh, that'll be cool. This is my first year in my house. I'll, I'll have like a bigger banana tree next year, okay? So what you do is you cut, you cut it down to about three feet tall, leave it for a week, and you come back and you cut it all the way down. So I did that last year. This year, um, I have bigger banana trees in my, my, back, my backyard, which is really cool until right now. You know why? It's more work to do. <laughs> I got, if you want to come over and help me cut these things down, I mean, they are like, it's huge. It's gotten ginormous. They have sprouted and it's twice as big as it was last year. It's even more responsibility. There's more work to do for me. And when you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God gives Adam responsibilities. Look in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, to work it. Okay? All right, so do you see that word, to work, in Genesis 2.15? You see it in your Bibles, or maybe up there? To work. Anytime that word is used by itself, it, re- it, uh, it implies the idea of cutting down banana trees. Work, tilling the ground. Okay? Doing agricultural work. 
Okay? Anytime you see it, it, look up in Genesis 2 verse 5, you can see this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. Okay? You see that? You got that idea? This is to work. When it's used by itself, it means agricultural work. That's what it means. Okay? But notice in Genesis 2.15, it's not by itself. Come back, I'll, I'll slow down here for you. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and what? Keep it. Okay? In Genesis 2.15, there's two words that show up. Work it and to keep it. Any time in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, there's about 10 different times when these two words show up in the same context, it refers to the work of the priest in the temple on behalf of the people. So let, let me give you just a, a few examples. We can throw this up. Um, I think we have uh, Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Let's see if we can throw that up there. They shall keep guard over him. Do we have this up there? I'll slow down and wait for us. It's, it's coming. Yep. Numbers chapter 3 verse 7 and 8. Okay. They shall keep guard over him, Aaron, the priest, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or what? Work. All right. There's keep and work. Now look in verse 8. They shall keep guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister or what? Work at the tabernacle. Look at 1 Chronicles 23. 1 Chronicles 23 verse 32. Let's throw that up there. I'm just giving you some ideas because I know this is it's like, what, what are you talking about here? 1 Chronicles 23 32. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. Eat. Okay, that's Numbers 3.9. That's okay. I'm going too fast for you. Here, here's, the, here's the idea. Here's the idea. When you look at Adam working and keeping the garden, the idea is not simply that he is just being an, an agrarian or a farmer. What he is doing is he's being a priest. He's working over the presence of God for the people of God. And also notice in Genesis 2.15. Look back in Genesis 2.15 where we are here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Let's say to be a priest. Look in Genesis 2.15. Do you see the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden? See that word put? It's not the normal Hebrew word for put like let's put a cup on the shelf. It was used earlier when God rested on the seventh day. When, so literally you could translate it. The Lord God took the man and rested him in the garden to be what? A priest. So Adam is now not just seen as a priest. But he's also, he's made in God's image, right? He's, he's what? A king. Do you see that? Now, what do you think is coming next? Look in Genesis 
2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God did what? What did he do? Commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is that? Prophet. He's giving him commands and telling him, relay this message. And what happens when the serpent comes to Eve? What does he say? No, you won't surely die. And in Genesis 3 verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, there it is. Here's the message I was given by my husband, prophet, priest, king, Adam. You shall not eat of the fruit of this tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Do you see when Adam fell? It wasn't just, look how mean God, it's not, that look how mean God is. He just ate a measly apple or fruit. Why was it so tragic? Because Adam failed as a priest, as a king, and as a prophet. And what happens in the Old Testament if you walked into the Holy of Holies on your own terms? You're gone. That's right, he gone. What happens if a king decided to rule on his own terms? Exile, right? What happened, and we saw in Deuteronomy 18, what happened if a priest or if a prophet decided to make up his own message and proclaim on his own terms the message of God? What would happen? Do not fear him. I did not send him, right? This is the tragedy of the fall when Adam when Adam disobeyed God. Adam's rebellion of God is not that he ate a measly fruit of tree when he was told not to. It's that Adam failed in all the categories in which it means to know God. He failed as a prophet, priest, and king. And when Adam failed as a prophet, priest, and king, God did not simply... The consequences was he was cut down and so was the rest of humanity as that banana tree in my backyard. You see, God doesn't deal with us in our sins as though we're a bunch of, just a bunch of stalks like corn and you mess up and you get cut down. Adam represented us as the head of the human race. And as, as the banana tree gets cut down, what happens to all the branches? They go down too, right? They fall. Jesus shows up on the scene and what does he say? I am the vine. You are the what? Branches. Abide in me and you will bear much what? Fruit. He's more than just a prophet. He is he is the head of salvation for humanity. All of history and all of humanity have been designed to find their climax and their meaning and their meaning in Jesus. Jesus is the prophet in whom, in whom humanity meets its head of salvation. 
And if that's true, is he more than a prophet? Hmm. Jesus is the priest to whom all the priests point because he brings us to God and is in fact God. Jesus is the king to whom all the kings point because he administers justice and is in fact in and of himself just. Jesus is the prophet to whom all the prophets point because he really shows us the truth of God and is in fact God himself. When Lance kicked off this series a couple weeks ago, he quoted Romans 15 verse 4, which says that all of what has been written down previously was meant for uh, our endurance and encouragement so that we might have hope. So let me ask you this morning, if Jesus is priest, do you, have you considered what that means for you existentially? That is, who you are in existing as a person? Have you considered the hope and the encouragement that brings? Because if Jesus is priest, that means God is present with us always. And he's not just present. He's generously present. Have you genuinely thought through what it means for Jesus to be priest in your life? And if so, do you live generously or do you consume and hold on? Maybe the reason you consume and hold on is not because you think, oh, I just, just need to guard this myself. It's because I don't really trust Jesus as priest and that he'll be present for me in my time of need. As a church, we look to this as Jesus as priest for our gospel renewal, gospel renewal. And so we have empathy and we have care and we have counselors. Jesus is king. Any situation I have in my life, I can have hope and encouragement because God rules and is sovereign over it. Do I trust God's providence in my circumstances? I tell you, the answer to that question for me recently has been no. Uh, this time of year, not a big fan of. Not a big fan. I, I end the year and I think, just didn't get to where I wanted to. I'd like to have a little more presence under the tree for my kids. Just seems winter is always here. Do I trust God's providences in my life? I need Jesus to be king in my life. No matter the situation, do I have an eye towards God's providences in my life? And as a church, we look to Jesus as king for gospel mission and doing. And so we can have acts of mercy and we can have deacons who show compassion because we have a king who is also priest and can stand over our lives and bring compassion and mercy. And Jesus is prophet. The normative, everyday aspects of my life, I can have hope and encouragement because I have, I have God's authority right here, tailor-made with promises for me. And so, I can have stewardship in what I'm given. And so the question is, am I faithful what God has given me to know him among the neighborhoods and the networks and the nations? And in our church, we have this displayed as gospel proclamation we have examples for elders and teachers and preachers and those who proclaim the word show us this is what it means to be a faithful prophet because Jesus is all of this 
for us. I'll, uh, I'll finish up in Matthew, Matthew 11. There was, um, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was a guy named John the Baptist. He is what you think when you think of prophet. Wild hair, crazy, eating locusts, wearing sandals, yelling, crazy, got the street sign, the, the end is near. Like that is the guy, crazy guy, okay, John the Baptist. And he shows up on the scene and people are being baptized. And John says, prepare the way, the Lord is coming. And what's interesting is, He's baptizing people away from the temple, away from God's presence. As to say, there is one who is now here and who is coming in which that temple's been pointing to and you can have forgiveness here and now. And they were crushing it. They were killing it. The ministry was booming and going and Jesus and John the Baptist, they were off and running. And within a couple years, John the Baptist ticks off Herod, ticks him off. He says, he's being prophet and he's saying, you are not remembering the covenant faithfulness of God. You're an adulterer. And what, is, what does Herod do? Oh, I'll show you. You want to see adulterer? He takes him and he puts him in prison. And in Matthew 11, John the Baptist takes his, his, uh, his delegation and he sends to Jesus. And what's he say? He says, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus' response, let's see if we can put up in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus' response to him in Matthew 11, it is in verse 3. Matthew 11 verse 3. What Jesus does here is he takes two Old Testament prophetic passages. Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 and he puts them together in his response to John the Baptist. He's speaking his language. John's going to know this passage. And in, I, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And I imagine John the Baptist hears that, and he's like, Yes, yes, that's great, that's great. Isaiah 61.1 also has a little phrase in there that says, and the captives are set free. And Jesus sends word to him and he puts Isaiah 35 and 61 together and, and he leaves out what? And the captives are set free. Here's code for that. Yes, John, I am the one to come, but you are going to die in prison. Does life not seem that way many times? When it's like, Lord, you're going to come through? Are you the one? Or should I actually trust you? Are you prophet, priest, king? Are you the one that I can rely on? John dies. He's beheaded in prison. And if we look through the rest of Matthew, and in Matthew 11, verse 7, they go away. Jesus goes away and Jesus begins to speak to the crowds in Matthew eleven seven, 7. And he says this. So after sending that word to John the Baptist, listen to how, and John the Baptist doesn't know that Jesus says this of him. John the Baptist never hears this. Jesus' thoughts of him. 
What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. What? He's talking about John the Baptist. He's more, more than a prophet. This is the one whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. John never heard that said about him. Never. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So here's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, John, I am the one to come and you're going to die in prison. John never hears this part. John is actually Elijah. But if you have ears to hear, think about what that means because I'm greater than John. And if he's greater than John, then he can do what John could not do. And that is to give you rest. And that is to come in and make sense of your life. When all the things that don't make sense. And how does Jesus end in Matthew chapter 11? All you who are weary and heavy laden, what? Come to me and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Jesus isn't saying, hey, look, you're killing it. For I've come, hey, if you're here in this room and you're killing it and you're feeling like things are great, that's great. Just come to me and I'll make things better. If you're here this morning and you feel, man, I'm in prison and things are not good and I hear God's word and I'm like, yeah, but more, more. I need to, like, uh, what about my situation here? I'm broken, I'm heavy laden, and I need rest. And Jesus says, that's exactly where you need to be to know me. It's exactly where you need to be to know me. Because he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. Jesus is the one in whom we can find our rest. And if that's true of him, that he's more than a prophet, will you come to him today? Let's pray. Uh, precious to us. And uh, we are grateful that you would claim us as your people. And that we would have Jesus as our priest and our king and as our prophet. And we long for the day, we long for the day in which we see him face to face. And so, Lord, would you take your word and uh, do what you promise. That all those who are weary and heavy laden, you will give rest to. We need rest. We need to know the chaos has been put down underneath your feet. And that we can find rest in you and that you have performed where we and everyone else and even Adam would fall. So Lord that we might know you 
and worship you as a true God who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.